that uh, that everybody comes back uh, whole uh, and no uh, no broken bones. All right, if you'll take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter one, David's question in Psalm eight and what the choir just saying earlier: "What is man?" is such a relevant, timely, uh, profound question for us to wrestle with today. And in this series of messages, we're sort of building a theological house. And Jesus told us that if you want your house to stand the winds and the waves of cultural chaos, you've got to build your house on what? The solid rock. And He said that that solid rock was His Word. So we started our series looking at the Bible as the bedrock foundation upon which we're going to build this theological house. But on that bedrock, that first level, the the cornerstone of our theological house is what we believe about God. And so we talked about the Trinity. We talked about the attributes and activities of God and of each person of the Godhead. We spent four weeks looking at that because that is so vital. It is so important because if we don't get that cornerstone of our faith right, the rest of that theological house is going to be askew. Especially this next doctrine that we're going to look at today, the doctrine of mankind. Because once we know who God is and what God does, then we can better answer the question, what is man? Our view of humanity, our view of ourselves, flows directly from our view about God. So what we believe about God influences what we believe about people. And I've said this before, I think this is the number one theological issue of our time. This is the Christian doctrine that I think is the most debated and the most attacked today. Are we just advanced animals who evolved through a series of accidents or are we eternal beings created in the image of God? Do we have free will or are we just the product of our environment and our genetics? Does gender matter? And what is a male or a female? What do those things mean? When does a human life begin? And does it have intrinsic sanctity and value and worth? The implication of how we answer these questions are enormous. From government to family to marriage to sexuality to death and life to medical ethics and economics and education and war, the list goes on. That's why it's so important that we get this right. What is man? What we believe about ourselves determines the kind of society in which we live, the way in which we are governed, whether or not we and our children and grandchildren will flourish. So we're going to go to the very beginning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 for the answer to this question. But first, I want us to look and see what the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has to say. It says, Man is the special creation of God made in His own image. He created them male and female as the crowning, not the crayoning, right, but the crowning work of His creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. In the beginning, man was innocent of sin and was endowed by his Creator with freedom of choice. By his free choice, man sinned against God and brought sin into the human race. Through the temptation of Satan, man transgressed the command of God and fell from his original innocence, whereby his posterity inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. Therefore, as soon as they are capable of moral action, they become transgressors and are under condemnation. 
Only the grace of God can bring man into his holy fellowship and enable man to fulfill the creative purpose of God. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in his own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. So we see there at the beginning of this statement and in Genesis chapter 1, the first truth we have to understand, what is man? Man is made in God's image. Man is made in God's image. Look with me at Genesis 1. We're going to read verses 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening and came and then morning, the sixth day. In the image of God, He created him. What does this mysterious phrase mean, in the image of God? It can't mean that you and I look like God, that we physically resemble God, right? We've already talked about that God is spirit. And and other than in the person of Jesus Christ, when He was incarnate, God has no physical form. So it can't mean that we look like God. So what does it mean that you and I are made in His image? It means a lot of things. We could spend a lot of time on this. But I want to point out two important things. One is that humanity is distinct. We are distinct. Let's consider for just a moment that humans are made. You and I are created. Let that roll around in your mind for a few moments. We didn't make ourselves. We didn't just evolve through some random chance of of, of chemicals and, and accidents out there. We're not just the product of random and personal forces. We were made. And that means we have a maker. We were created. That means we are creatures. So let's, let's read the account of how God made the first man and woman. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Now look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, there are some amazingly important details in these verses we've looked at. Notice first how intimately involved God was in our creation. You know, throughout Genesis 1, God says things like, let the earth bring forth sprouts and and plants. Or he says, let the seas team with creatures. Let the air, let the sky. He keeps saying that, but God doesn't say that here. 
When God created humans, He said, let us. God was no longer speaking to creation. He was speaking to Himself. The triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit said, let us make man in our image. So rather than us being created after other kinds, again, you see that in Genesis 1. It says, and after their kind, and after their kind. No, we share our likeness with the Creator Himself. And this is so significant because we are unlike any other thing in creation because God made us in His likeness. He made us after His own kind. And far more than just speaking us into existence like He did everything else, God got His hands dirty, literally. He formed us from the dirt of the ground. We are equal parts stuff of heaven and stuff of earth. God formed us from the dirt, from the earth, that He had made. But then God breathed into man and gave us the breath of life. Now, you may remember last week I mentioned that the Hebrew word ruach can be translated breath, wind, or, anybody? Spirit. So when God created us, He imparted, we made Adam, He imparted something of Himself into Adam. And then He imparted something from Adam into Eve, didn't He? And this is such a beautiful picture because it shows how deeply intimate and personal and relational we are. Our connectedness with each other, with our Creator, and even with the very earth upon which we live. Listen, people are not just more sophisticated or better adapted creatures. We aren't distinct from other organisms by degree. Humans are uniquely created in God's image. We share a special relationship with our Creator. Nothing else in all of creation shares. We're unique. Another thing that sets humanity apart from the created order is that we alone are given authority to rule over the rest of creation. As bearers of the divine image sustained by His breath of life, His Spirit imparted to us. We are called to be God's partners in the world. Isn't that amazing? We partner with God in the world. As soon as God created Adam, what did He do? He put him to work. He put him to work to tend the garden, to name the animals. And once Eve came, God gave a commission to Adam and Eve and to all of humanity. Look back at Genesis 1.28 for that first commission God ever gave. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Now, people mistakenly think that work was part of the curse after sin. And I understand that, especially Monday mornings, right? You you feel that way. I get it. But we were made to work the creation just as much as we were made to worship the Creator. Work is an essential part of who we are and how God made us. In fact, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this, and I know he's, he's speaking to Christians, but I think this broadly applies to everyone. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That word workmanship can be also translated handiwork. 
masterpiece. In fact, the Greek word there is the same word from which we get the word poem. We are God's poem. We are God's masterpiece. And and He put us in the world to display His goodness, His glory, His image to the rest of creation. And we do that through how we love others. We do that through how we help the world God has made to thrive and flourish. And when we recognize that every human being is created in God's image, that has radical implications for every issue that's being debated right now in our culture. You name it. What we view about humanity and seeing people created in God's image is huge. Because every human being, therefore, is sacred. Every human being is of an infinite worth and value. And when we embrace this simple yet profound truth, the seemingly complicated and confusing issues become clearer, don't they? One of those such issues is race. Not only has God created us distinct, but God also created humanity as diverse. We are diverse. And people sometimes wonder what race were Adam and Eve. Well, they were the same race that all of us are. The human race. There's only one race. And when we talk about race, when we use that word, and especially in terms of black or white or, or Asian or Hispanic, we're really talking about different ethnicities. Because we all are of the same race. We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We're all members of the same human family. And ultimately, we all share the same human story. I love what Acts 17, 26 says. It says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. From the beginning, God designed a human family that would originate from one father and one mother. So how did we grow to become so diverse? All these languages scattered all over the world, different ethnicities, different cultures, how did that happen? Well, God always, from the beginning, we read it there in Genesis 1.28, God always wanted to fill His world with the people He created in His image to His glory. But, once again, humanity rebelled. This time against God's call to fill the earth, to multiply, to be fruitful and fill the earth. And so we read the, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 about how humanity tried to establish a name for themselves, apart from God. We decided we didn't want to be God's partners in the world anymore. We wanted to do things our own way. We had our own plans, our own designs for how to run things. We wanted our own glory. And so in response, God confused their languages. And as a result, forced them to obey His commission to fill the earth, right? He kind of forced our hands to have to do that because once He confused our languages, we... What? We reluctantly spread the Creator's image throughout the world, gathering together as we do with people who are like us, who who speak like us, right? And, and, And so part of the blessing of Babel is that we did fill the earth with diversity. We did spread throughout all of creation, but the curse of Babel is that those differences have resulted in division rather than unity. Different languages result in division, right? Like I said, people naturally gravitate toward those who are like ourselves, but sin plants the seeds of distrust within us toward otherness. We're fearful. We're distrustful of people who aren't like us. 
It's that sin nature that drives this us versus them mentality that we often see and that leads to racism and bigotry and hatred and conflict and war. The danger of that right now happening between Russia and Ukraine, that, that fear over what another nation is going to do to someone else. The pages of human history are littered with this kind of ethnic animosity. And, and we see all the way back in the Garden of Eden how sin divides. It separates, right? Adam and Eve sinned, and what the first thing they did, they hid from God and they hid from each other. And they started pointing fingers and passing the buck. It's what they did immediately. Adam and Eve's relationship became strained with jealousy and resentment and domination. And then we see their children. Cain kills his brother Abel. He takes the first human life. And all the thousands and thousands and thousands of years since then, it's a good thing we've come a long way, right? No, not much has changed. Right? We, 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 we cut ourselves off from each other. We fail to listen and forgive and work together for the common good. We point fingers and pass the buck too, don't we? Sin always causes separation and division. It pits people against each other, opposing and resenting the very same image of God in them that's within us. So when we talk about racial problems, we're really talking about sin. And I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. We don't have a skin problem. We have a sin problem. Racism is just one way in which our sinfulness manifests itself. In fact, one African-American professor at Southern Seminary wrote, the Christian gospel tells us that racism fundamentally exists because of sin. Racism is an evil ideology of hate which shows itself most clearly through violent or prejudicial actions, but racism exists even without those, th- those things Excuse me, because of sin. And then he says this, Could the very construct of race be one more manifestation of the sin of racism? Racism begetting the very idea of race? Yes! Because like I said, we're all of one race. We're all children of Adam and Eve. We're all the creation of God made in His image. So anytime we see other people as anything less than fellow bearers of God's image, we're committing sin. No matter how we might categorize them, judge them, or look down upon them. This is one of the big problems, and you, you hear it all the time, all the hype about critical race theory. This is one of the big problems with that with this racial essentialism, because it does try to separate and divide people out based on the color of their skin, as if that's the bottom line, that's the great denominator. It tries to pit us against each other as victims and victimizers, oppressors and oppressed. It tries to lump people together and paint them with a broad brush based on the color of their skin. That, my friends, is sin. And it's wrong, and it's not how the Bible teaches us to view people. The Bible grounds our understanding of human diversity in ethnicity. I I like to use the language of Genesis 10.31, where it says that we compose clans in separate nations that speak different languages in diverse territories. That's the kind of language the Bible uses. It doesn't talk about race. It talks about clans and tribes and languages and nations. And with the globalization of our world and the the migration of people groups between different countries and continents, those, those clans and separate nations and tribes and languages, guess what? We're all living together in the same cities and states and countries. 
And I think that's why the concept of ethnicity is helpful because it includes all of these factors as well as social and cultural, lingual, historical, and religious characteristics. You know, there are about 200 nations in the world, roughly, depending on the day of the week, right? But there are anywhere between, depending on how you count these things and divide these things up, there's anywhere between 11,000 and 16,000 different ethno-linguistic groupings. They are a diverse world. They take a lot of boxes of 64 crowns to capture all that difference, all that beautiful variety with all the different customs and histories and practices. God has created all people around the world of every color, of every language, of every culture in His image and they are all loved by God and placed on this earth for His glory. Every one of them. And God desires for all of us to celebrate and affirm our diversity while remaining united in mutual love and care and partnership. Because truly, what unites us is far greater than anything that might differentiate us. God is a God who loves diversity. He loves variety. There's not just one kind of tree. There's not just one kind of pine tree. There's not just one kind of squash or carrot. I'm planting a garden, and it's amazing when you look at the different varieties of carrots or cucumbers. It's amazing the diversity there is there. That's how God has created our world. But another way in which God has given us diversity that really should bring us together in unity isn't just that He made us with different ethnicities, but He made us with different genders. He made us male and female. And this to me is more fundamental. This is more basic than than anything we could talk about regarding ethnicity or, or, or racism. Men and women are equal in worth and value as bearers of God's image. Let me say that again. Men and women are equal in worth and value as bearers of God's image. But we also have unique, complementary qualities and roles. We have different attributes and activities. Going back to the way we were talking about God. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have some different attributes and activities, men and women have different attributes and activities. When we consider the beauty of being created as equal yet diverse, it broadens our view on both racial and gender issues. Because we are embodied beings. Listen, that means that we, are, we have a spirituality and we have a physicality. And this is how God has made us, including our gender, as male and female. I love Psalm 103. It's, it's, such a, it's, a, it's a verse we need to hear more and more today. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We don't call that shot. We don't make ourselves. We receive our bodies and our genders as a gift from God's hand. And I know this is a controversial statement to say today, which is crazy to me that this is controversial, but our gender is a gift from God. And gender matters. It makes a difference. And this is where the Bible and biology actually line up pretty well. And and I mean real science, real biology, not the pseudoscience that's out there today. Listen, y'all, science has not changed in the last ten years on this. There's not been some big discovery in genetics about male and female that's changing things, right? No, that's all driven by politics and ideology and philosophy. So if you reject that pseudoscience, you look at actual biology, it lines up with the Bible on this. 
The notion that how you feel about your body on the inside should take precedence over the actual reality of your body is, is not what the Bible teaches. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. And this notion that the, what I think inside of me is more important than my body is actually rooted in ancient paganism. That actually goes all the way back to the 1st and 2nd centuries in Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed in this duality, this, this physical versus spiritual, where the body was bad and the spirit was good. So the spiritual had to take precedent over the physical. Now sometimes that way of thinking seeps into the way Christians think. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are both spiritual and physical. We are equal parts, dirty earth and heavenly breath. Equally, stuff of heaven and stuff of earth. And for those people who tragically do suffer any kind of dysphoria, I mean, any kind of dysphoria where your inner feelings don't match your outer physical reality, we should treat those people with compassion and care and get them help so that their inner sense of themselves matches up with their embodied reality, not the other way around. Genesis 2.18 tells it plainly, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. Y'all, this is the first time that God declared something not good. He took one look at man and said, It's not good that he's alone. He needs help. And all the women said, Amen, right? Yeah. And so God made a, a helper suitable for him, a helper that corresponded to him. This means that when God made the first woman from the first man, He made her equal to that man in worth, in dignity, and in value. Adam and Eve and every man and woman since are co-creators, co-partners, and co-stewards in God's world. We equally bear God's image within us. But God has also made us distinct from one another. Men and women are different, right? There's a difference between boys and girls. They act different. They play different. They think different. They're different. David Platt in his book, Counterculture, wrote it like this. Equal dignity does not eliminate distinction. God creates man and woman to cherish their shared equality while complementing their various differences. It's beautiful. It's so true. God gave mankind the job of filling the earth and forming it. Really, in a way, God is tasking humanity with continuing on His creative work because when you read Genesis 1, is that not what God is doing? He's filling the earth and forming it. And then He stops His work and rests on the seventh day and He says to man, now you continue filling and forming the earth that I've made. But, you know, unlike God, we can't just speak things into existence. Man, that'd be nice if we could do that, wouldn't it? But no, we have to take what God has already made and giving us to work with it. We work with what He's already given us, the material He's already giving us. That includes the genetic material that He's given us to make more people. I, I can't just go out and form somebody from the dirt of the ground and breathe into them the breath of life, can I? We take from what God has given us and we make more people. And that's not something Adam could do by himself, was it? <laughs> no. Maybe we need to have a basic biology class right here. No. And this is the important value of that one flesh union that we recognize and celebrate in marriage. And, and I'll talk more about this when we get to the, the article on the family 
But for today, just let me say this, that marriage reflects God's design for equality in our variety. Unity in diversity. In marriage, men and women, as David Platt said, uniquely cherish our shared equality while complementing our inherent differences. And at the most basic level, let's just get real basic here, men and women need each other to fill the world. Adam needed Eve to fill the world. Because it doesn't say in Genesis 2 that God looked at Adam and saw that he was lonely and in need of companionship. It's not what he said. No, he said Adam is alone and needs a helper. He needs someone to help him do what I have called him to do. In fact, in Genesis 2.20, the point of bringing all these animals to Adam for him to name was to help him realize that none of these are going to cut, cut it. <laughs> They're not going to do it. They're not like me. They're something different and other than me. And so here's, here's I just love the image. Here's Adam naming all these animals, saying, yeah, that's no good. That's no good. That, God, where, where's somebody like me? I need someone like me. Animals are great at forming things, right? If we're to fill and form the earth, animals are great at helping us form things. You take an ox, put a plow behind it, it can till the soil, right? But there's no animal that could help Adam fill the world with more bears of God's image. The beauty of humanity being in God's image, male and female, is that we need each other. In our world, in our lives, we need people who are like us, but different from us to help us continue God's creative work, to fill the world with His goodness. God made us in His image, male and female. But thirdly, God made us with moral agency. Now, if the world is God's handiwork and we're His masterpiece, what happened? How did the image of God within us become so vandalized and marred and distorted? Well, there's a dark thread that runs through our world and on our relationships and our hearts, and that dark thread the Bible calls sin. And because of sin, we lost God and we lost the garden. So instead of walking with God, we run and hide from God. Instead of this beautiful, creative relationship with the world, we have disasters and diseases. Instead of harmony and peace, we have war and terrorism and broken marriages. What a paradox that the pinnacle of creation, human beings made in the very image of a holy God, become so profoundly fallen and depraved. Good moms and dads who love their children still lose their temper. Generous businessmen and women still say and do things that wound other people. Hardworking people still selfishly ignore the poor. No matter how good we might think we are, we can't escape the selfishness and darkness in the human heart. And why is that? Three things. One, God created us with freedom of choice. That's the moral agency. Part of being made in God's image means that we have the freedom to choose how we live and what kinds of people we'll be. Listen, we can't love God if we're forced to love God, right? You can't force love. Love has to be freely given. So part of that being made in the image of God to be in a relationship with God meant we had the ability to choose not to be in that relationship with God. And God did this by creating in the garden. He gave Adam and Eve every tree, every tree of the garden you can eat, including the tree of life. And that's as good as it gets, the tree of life. But then he put in the garden this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and said that's the one thing you can't eat. So, of course, what's the one thing that Adam and Eve want to eat? The one tree, you know, it's like you can give your kids all this freedom, you give them one rule, what are they going to do? They're going to break that one rule every time. What's the deal with this tree, though? Well, the word knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is best translated determination. 
The tree of the determination of good and evil. The choice that God gave Adam and Eve was simple. Am I going to choose to believe what God says is right and wrong, good and evil, or am I going to choose to determine that for myself? Am I going to follow my maker's path or am I going to forge my own path? Am I going to follow the giver of life to give me all the peace and purpose and joy and happiness I want or am I going to try to pursue those things apart from the giver of life? Now, what happens when you choose to pursue those things and walk away from the giver of life? What do you think you're going to get if you are walking away from the giver of life? You're probably going to get death. And that's what happened. And that's the nature of sin. And so the the choice that God placed before them, and, and Satan comes along and he whispers the great lie to Eve, don't trust God. He really doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's not that good. He doesn't really love you. He whispers this lie. He makes a false promise. If you eat of the tree, you're going to be like God. And listen, doesn't temptation always make good promises it can never follow through with? Yes, it does. So when Adam and Eve ate that tree and disobeyed the Creator God, every human being born since then has been born with an inclination towards sin. The Bible calls this the flesh, our sinful nature. Not our physical bodies when it says the flesh. It means our sinful nature. And when you and I sin, we also reject God's goodness and love, His desire for a relationship with us. When we sin, it's a futile attempt to have the good things apart from God's good grace. It's, it's a declaration of independence from God. And just as Adam and Eve did, we try to silence God's voice. We, we don't want to live the world as He narrates it. We don't want to be a part of that story. We want to listen to other voices. We want to live alternative stories that are always smaller and sadder stories and they always end in tragedy and in death. When we sin, we continue to contribute to the sad story of humanity undermining and perverting and cursing God's very, very good world. And because of that, we are all under condemnation. Jesus said in John 3, 17, we love John 3, 16, but John 3, 17 says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The world stands already condemned. We are born condemned because of our sin. And we call this condemnation, the effects of sin, the curse. And the curse is equal part God's judgment on us and just the natural consequence of trying to live life apart from Him. Everything in creation immediately began to fall apart apart when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Creation started to come undone. And we continue to see that today. Divisions and, and hatred and fear and war and disaster and disease and hardship and suffering and death are a part of our story because of sin. And God warned them. He warned them that to, to reject Him in life was to welcome death. And so death comes to us all. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that it's appointed for people to die once and after this the judgment. All of us will face this unless Christ comes back. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is our payment. It's what we've earned. It's what we're due because of our sin. Like you earn your wages, you earn a paycheck. We have earned death by our sin. And in Romans 3.23, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That Greek word for sin means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. It's like anytime we aim at the target to try to be good people. I'm not even saying perfect people. We try to be good people, we're going to fall short. We miss the mark. 
of God's glory and purpose and plan for us every time. But Paul went on in Romans 6.23 to tell us that even though we earn death by our sin, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? We earn death by sin. We can't earn eternal life. It's a gift. God gives it to us freely. God never gave up hope on those made in His image. And in fact, the minute Adam and Eve sinned, God began to work His plan of redemption. Because not only are we made in God's image as male and female, not only do we have moral agency, but God wants to make us new in Christ. He wants to make us new in Christ. In Genesis 3.15, right there in the midst of God cursing Adam and Eve and the serpent, is this verse. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Right there in Genesis 3 is the first prophecy of Jesus. Jesus, the offspring of a woman, would be struck by the serpent as he dies on the cross for our sins. But through his death and resurrection, he puts sin and death on notice that their days were done. Their time on earth had an expiration date. And because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, God is able to make us new. And I'll talk more about this next week as we talk about what we believe about salvation. But let me just say this today. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he didn't just die for individual people. He died to make a new humanity. He died to save the church, the body and bride of Christ. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been made new. The old is gone, the new has come. Jesus is called the second Adam, and we are made new in His likeness when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. Does that include you? Have you ever been convicted by the spirit of your sinfulness and your need for a Savior? And in genuine remorse, turned away from sin and said, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Come and save me and live within me and make me new. If you've never done that, if you're not a part of this new humanity that God is making, I invite you to come right now and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Let Him give you a fresh start. Let Him begin to make you new in Him. Maybe this morning you're a believer in Christ and you know that this is the, 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 the local expression of that new humanity, that heavenly family, that global family. You said, First Baptist Thompson is where God wants me to plant my family, to grow and to worship and to serve and to be everything God has created us to be. We as a church want to do that. We want to help you be fully who God has made you to be and has saved you to be. So let's stand together. I invite you to come, however the Spirit of God is leading you today. Father, thank you for creating us. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you that you have made us in your image as male and female. You've made us diverse. You've made us each unique. But you've made us so that we need you and we need one another. But we, we can't do this life on our own. You've placed us, God, within this community and as believers in Christ within this faith community, Lord. To be the people you've created us to be. And, and, and you're constantly working to, to shave off the sin in our life, to, to mold us and to chisel us more and more into the image of Christ. To restore within us that image you gave us but has been marred by sin. And Father, if there's anyone here today that needs that today, they know they need to be made new in Christ, I pray they would come. Or to unite with this church, or to pray at this altar, or to say, you know what, I... 
I'm, I'm going to stop these attitudes and these thoughts and feelings I've been having about myself or other people. I'm going to embrace who God has made me in the image of God to be redeemed by Christ Jesus from the marring effects of sin. We ask it all in your Son's strong and beautiful name. Amen.